Okay, folks, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn in them with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning, we are going to look at verses 18 to 22. And so let's begin by reading this together. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word to our hearts and to our souls this morning. Friends, we have an amazing text in front of us here today, but it is also a, a somewhat confusing text to study together. In fact, it is almost unanimous among Bible scholars that this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. There are grammatical and, and theological difficulties here that have left some really smart people very confused, rather befuddled. Martin Luther himself the 16th century reformer, who was a really smart guy and who had a, a strong opinion about just about everything in life, Martin Luther said about this text, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter meant. And folks, parts of this passage are indeed very obscure. Well, what does it mean that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison? What, what does Peter mean that baptism is now what saves us? That doesn't sound theologically appropriate to us. The, these are strange ideas to our ears, and, and most of us don't fully know what to make of them. And so why not deal with it through a Facebook Live service, right? Here we go. But church, what I want us to know as we begin this morning is that though there are elements here that, that are confusing, the main idea of this passage is crystal clear. While there are difficult textual parts to this passage, the main purpose of it is really unmistakable within the context of this letter. And the purpose of this is meant for our comfort, for our strength, for our hope, and for our joy this morning. One commentator summarizes this confusing text by saying this, This passage speaks of the sweeping scope of the efficacy of Christ's victory in his resurrection and ascension. And I could not agree with that statement anymore. This passage is about the victory of Jesus over all 
things and how we as the church, even as we suffer through this life, can find comfort and strength in him and in his victory. And Redeemer Fellowship, I don't think that there is any better way for us to prepare our hearts for Easter morning than to study this text together. Here's the main idea this morning. The victory of Jesus enables you to rest in him through every trial. The victory of Jesus through his resurrection and ascension enables you to rest in him through every trial. And we have three points this morning, all of them wonderfully centered on Christ. Point number one, Christ suffered once for sins. Point number two, Christ was made alive again. And point number three, Christ ascended above all things. Okay, let's look at these one at a time. Point number one, Christ suffered once for sins. Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 is key to us understanding the the theme and and the main purpose of this rather confusing text. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. That that, that little word for is key because it connects this passage to what precedes it. And what precedes it is the idea of us, the, the, the people of God, the church, the community of believers, the body of Christ, suffering for righteousness sake. Right? We considered this together last week from up in verse 14. Peter begins to talk about the possibility of, of further persecution. He's speaking about the experience of suffering as Christians, of being hated, of being maligned for our faith, of being fought against when we seek to live for God's glory. And now, it's not just society-wide, government-endorsed persecution against the church that Peter is speaking about here. It's other forms of suffering and persecution as well. This letter, if we remember, is written to people who are described as elect exiles. Exiles. That they are suffering. They're suffering in many ways because of their faith. They are lonely. They're being ostracized. The culture around them doesn't understand them. They don't get them. They, this church stands out because of their faith in a crucified Messiah. Their unbelieving spouses don't get them. Their unbelieving bosses and managers at work don't get them. And others don't get them. And and, and they just don't understand who these people are and why they live the way that they live. And they're even being abused because of it. They are suffering. And Peter has told them that there's more suffering on the way. Folks, the same is true for us this morning, right? The same is true for us, whether it be in in being bold in our faith towards unbelievers and then being persecuted because of it, whether it's just fighting against the presence of indwelling sin and the temptations of our own lustful hearts, whether it's, it's fighting to have faith and trust in God when our finances are running out and our employment is uncertain, Living for Jesus is not always easy, and and Peter is therefore trying to encourage us here about how the victory of Jesus enables us to rest in him through all of our circumstances. Now listen, there's something distinct about the way that Peter seeks to encourage us here. If you remember, up in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, Peter points us to the example of Jesus as he suffered in our place. 
But, but as we saw two weeks ago, that was more of a template for us to follow. He's an example for us in his suffering. His patient suffering is an example or a template for how we can sacrificially love those around us as well. But what Peter does here in chapter 3, verse 18, church is very different. He's not pointing to the sufferings of Christ as just a template or example that we can learn from. No, He is pointing to the sufferings of Christ and he is articulating very clearly the the fullness of what Christ has accomplished for us. This isn't a template to follow. No, this is simple gospel truth for you and I to adore this morning, to celebrate and to sing loudly about. This is the gospel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is a statement about the victory of Jesus over sin and death. Church, think about how significant this is. He died that he might bring us to God. Church, don't don't view that statement lightly. This is not a small event that he might bring us to God. This is speaking of of the greatest issue and the greatest need that this world has ever known. In order for us to consider this together, take a minute and and think about a big need in this world. Think about the COVID-19 crisis. My, My mind, I don't know about yours, but my mind cannot get around the magnitude of what a global pandemic really is. When when, when I start thinking about all the needs, all that needs to be done to solve this problem, when, when I start thinking about the amount of work, the amount of energy, the amount of resources, the collective wisdom and skill that is needed to bring healing to our world through this crisis. I don't know about you, but my brain begins to hurt. This is a massive issue that we are in. But listen, friend, when was the last time that you considered how your sin before a holy God is a bigger problem than all of that? When was the last time that you considered that your sin breaks relationship? It it separates you from the living God, the one who is the greatest source of love and peace and health that is available to you. Your sin alone is a greater issue than a global pandemic. It's It's a harder problem to solve. If the entire world's resources were given to deal with your sin or my sin alone, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't get the job done. Why? Because your sin, because my sin, my my pride and my laziness and my anger and my selfishness and my self-pity and all these things that I've done against his holiness, they sentence me, they, they damn me to an eternity in hell under the just wrath of God and nothing that I can do, friend, nothing that you can do could ever fix this problem. Think about this. Now, think about the history of the world and of God's people in particular and how much we have tried to atone for our many sins. How many of us have tried to pay the penance for the mistakes that we've made? You know, when you look into God's word and you see the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was put in place by God to temporarily deal with and to atone for our sins, right? Throughout the Old Testament, Sacrifice after sacrifice, 
Day of atonement after day of atonement. Generation of priests after generation of priests. Blood from sacrifices spilt again and again and again to deal with the weight and the guilt of our sin before God. But even then, it was not enough. The the sacrificial system could not bring us fully back to God. Romans chapter 3 says that the sacrificial system simply allowed God to, to forbear with our sin for a period of time, but it didn't solve the problem of our sin once for all. Nothing in this world can fix the problem of your sin. Now listen, some of you have been trying really hard to fix the problem of your sin because you've made really big mistakes in life. You have really big regrets from the things that you've done because you've hurt people both both near to you and those that you, you love. Condemnation is heavy upon you and you have tried so hard to just fix your life, to try to live a good life, to make up for your many mistakes. Some of you are trying to do this under the banner of being a Christian within the church to to fix the mistakes that you've made. We all do this to some degree. But our attempts at living a good and moral life are not enough to bring us back to God. Now, we need something outside of ourselves, church. We need something outside of this world. We need God himself. And therefore, Scripture tells us that God became man because man needed to pay the penalty for humanity's sinfulness. So God became man, but yet he was still fully God. Verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is substitutionary atonement at its very best. He, the righteous one, the God-man, stood in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. And being the God-man, being both fully God and man, his sacrifice worked. It worked. Friends, think about how long the people of Israel had been practicing the sacrificial system for centuries and centuries and centuries. Yet Peter says Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Church, this is the gospel that we love, that we sing of, that we never grow tired of because it's the only hope that we have this morning. Friend, if you have been looking to other things to give you hope in this life, if you've been looking to other things to find peace, you will spend your life toiling for that peace. When in reality, the the once-for-allness of Christ's sacrifice invites you right now to find that perfect and eternal peace. Right now, he invites you to come and to give yourself to him. Christ died once for sins. He was put to death in the flesh, in our place, so that we might have life. And, And he was made alive in the Spirit. That brings us to our second point, point number two. Christ was made alive again. The end of verse 18 says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, fundamentally, the focus of this passage is on the victory of Jesus. That's the focus. The the emphasis of this text is on the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We, We know that because of how it speaks explicitly about it in verse 18. And then how it returns to the theme of his resurrection and ascension in verse 21 and 22. 
Peter is zeroing in on the victory of Christ over the grave, the the once-for-allness of his death and resurrection, the, the glory and the beauty and the goodness that has come about through what seemed to us like pointless and unjust suffering. That's what Peter wants us to see here. But the question remains, what about verses 19 to 21? What about these verses that speak about Jesus proclaiming things to spirits who are in prison? What about Noah's Ark? And what about baptism? What what significance do these rather strange and almost parenthetical phrases have on the main purpose of this passage? Well, let's look at it together now. Verse 19 says that, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What does that mean? Who are these spirits? What did Jesus proclaim to them? And and what connection does this have to to Noah and the ark? Well, let me give a a few possible interpretations very quickly, uh, and then I'll give you the interpretation that I land on. One interpretation, which is not viable, is, and it's more of the Roman Catholic perspective, is that, is that Jesus went and gave an evangelistic message to those who had died before his coming to earth. Okay, so this interpretation kind of hints at the idea of purgatory, the idea that you can have a second chance to come to faith in Christ after you die. But friends, we don't see purgatory evidenced anywhere in Scripture. The opportunity to put our faith in Christ comes during our one life on this earth, and there's not a purgatory that offers a second chance to believe in Christ after death. That's that's not what Peter means here. A second interpretation is that this is how people from the Old Testament were offered the gift of salvation through Christ. But this isn't isn't right either. People in the Old Testament were not held in a a prison cell until the the moment when Christ was able to come to them in the flesh and say, here I am, now you can believe in me. No, immediate salvation was offered to the Old Testament saints by believing in the Savior that would one day come. It was by faith, just as it is by faith for us. So that's not the right interpretation either. A third interpretation, this one promoted by many people that I respect a great deal, including Wayne Grudem, uh, this interpretation suggests that that Peter is simply speaking about the the pre-incarnate Christ. So before Christ became a man and that he is preaching salvation through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, to those in Noah's day. So this interpretation is, is supported by the fact that Peter describes Noah in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, as a herald of righteousness. And so the, the perspective is that the same spirit that was used to bring Christ back from the dead, that the Holy Spirit is the same spirit through which Christ preached salvation through Noah in the days of, of the flood. Now, I, I don't think that that fits here either, because Peter's use of the Spirit in verse 18 doesn't seem to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, but rather just to the spiritual realm. Uh, And I also don't think that this interpretation fits because the word used for Spirit in verse 19, when, when it's in the plural form like it is here, it is almost exclusively used not to speak of, of human souls, but to describe angels and demons. It's talking about the spiritual realm. Okay, and so... 
As you can see, there are a lot of different ways of interpreting this. These are only a few, there are many more. None of them necessarily change the main, main theme of this text dramatically. Here is where I land on this. I, do, I don't hold this perspective dogmatically, but I, but I do believe that it fits best into the context and that it makes most sense textually. And this would be the position of, of uh, Tom Schreiner and Karen Jobes and other biblical scholars as well. I believe that, that verse 19, when it says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, I believe that verse 19 is connected to verse 22 when it speaks of how Jesus has gone into heaven. Okay, in fact, the word went in verse 18 and the word gone in verse 22 are the same Greek word. And so here's what I think that it is saying. Again, it's, it's not saying that while Jesus was in the grave, he went and preached to Old Testament saints who still needed to believe, nor did he simply preach to those in Noah's day through his Holy Spirit. That, that would not have required that Jesus go anywhere. That's not what this is. What this is, I believe, is a statement from Peter about how when Jesus went to heaven, when, when he rose from the dead and ascended on high. This is a statement about his victory and power through the resurrection and ascension. In, in that going, he was declaring his victory over all demonic powers. And so, so that's what I think that Peter means when he says that Jesus went and proclaimed. It's speaking of his resurrection and his ascension, his going into heaven. And so this, this proclamation is not evangelistic. It's not, it's not for the conversion of souls. No, this proclamation is a declaration of victory over all evil powers. It's a loud declaration of victory over every evil power when Jesus went, when he rose from the dead and ascended on high. And now, why does he talk about Noah and the ark? That's a good question. I think for several reasons. First, when Peter says that God waited patiently in the days of Noah, he, he is referencing God's forbearance with evil spirits during what was perhaps one of the most evil times in world history. The, the days of Noah were particularly evil and particularly demonic days. And so, so Peter brings up the time of Noah, not because Jesus is only declaring his victory over those demonic powers that have been kept in a prison, but because the demonic powers of those days were, were somewhat iconic, somewhat symbolic of evil powers from all times. And therefore, Peter is sharing how Jesus proclaimed victory over all powers of darkness. This is a universal declaration of victory over evil. And there is no evil realm that Jesus does not have victory over now. I also think, and this is significant for us this morning, I also think that Peter brings up Noah and the flood because it is particularly relevant to his readers, his original readers, and to us. He speaks of, of Noah who stood for righteousness. He speaks of Noah who had good conduct in the midst of an evil culture. He speaks of Noah and his family who were very much like us, elect exiles, a, a small remnant of only eight people in the midst of a very corrupt culture. I, I, I like how Peter emphasizes that they were just a few that went into the ark. 
He writes of Noah and his family who were preserved by God's grace through God's judgment. They came through the waters. Peter isn't bringing up Noah to show that the same power that preserved Noah and his family through incredibly evil times is the same power that has caused Jesus to be raised from the dead and that will preserve us as we live as exiles in this fallen world. That's great news for us. And this is where verse 21 comes in as well, right? Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism corresponds to Noah and the flood because in the same way that Noah and his small family were preserved from the wrath of God through the ark, so we declare through baptism that we have been preserved from the wrath of God through Christ dying in our place and being raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the the victory of Christ in our lives as, as it pictures our old selves dying and our new selves being raised up free from the judgment, free from the wrath of God. It's yet another declaration of of the victory of Christ in this life and for the world to see. And Peter makes it clear, we should point out, that he does not mean that baptism is actually what saves us. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration, that you can be saved from your sins through simply being baptized. Peter clarifies himself. He says, not as a removal of dirt from our bodies. Baptism is is not what cleans us from our sins. No, faith in the resurrected and reigning Christ is what does all of that. But baptism is an act of obedience and a declaration of our union with Jesus and his victory over sin and death. And it is a, a public declaration that we want to live for God's glory with a clean conscience. So church, do you see, through all these confusing verses, do you see the point of all of this? I I hope that you do. The the point is to consider the power of Christ over all demonic powers, over all sin, and over all difficulties that we may be experiencing in this life. This is great news. This brings us to our third and to our final point, point number three, Christ ascended above all things. Look at the end of verse 21 into verse 22 with me. It says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Note that word, subjected. He has gone into heaven. He he has ascended on high. He is right now at the right hand of God the Father. All of of this language in these verses speaks of of absolute, unquestionable supremacy. His, His victory is being declared by Peter over the entire cosmos. Peter references Psalm 110, which says that all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. A footstool for his feet. And that's exactly what Peter says has happened. All of these evil powers have been subjected to him. They have no power. Now, do we still feel the effects of them? Yes. Do they still try to attack us? Yes. We still live in a fallen and a corrupt world, but the victory is already won. King Jesus is on 
his throne. He's won, and his victory, through his victory, he has given life to all of us. And church, I can't wait to consider this more fully next week on Easter morning, that through the life that we have been given, we have been armed for war as the people of God. He's given us life. But for now, let's end our time by considering yet again how the victory of Jesus enables us to rest in him through every trial. Obviously, the the victory of Jesus is always good news. We'll never turn down that news. But church, it becomes even better. It becomes even sweeter when we remember the context that this is all being written in. It's written to elect exiles, to those who are suffering, just physically and unjustly from others, to those who are being subjected to difficult authorities in their life as they seek to follow them for God's glory. But but Peter is showing us that that in God's economy, according to God's design, unjust suffering is not the end of the story. Being subject to to others is, is always hard, particularly when those that we are subject to are not godly people. Peter knows that that we're being treated unjustly in many circumstances. He's told us to be subject to our governing authorities, even when that brings pain. He's told us to be subject to unjust and unfair bosses and managers at work, even when that seems unfair. He's told wives to be subject even to their unbelieving husbands, which is extremely difficult. He's told husbands to care for their wives even when costly. He's told all of us to fight for unity even when it means that we are reviled by others and when evil is done against us. And he's told us all that even harder and greater persecution is on the way. These things are hard. And it's easy to feel like we are, we are giving up our control and even giving up our safety over these things when we seek to be subject to them. Think about it. it it's hard, isn't it? To not feel like we have control over our circumstances. It's hard when we feel like we've lost control when our bosses take advantage of us. It's hard for Christian women to be married to non-Christian husbands who do not value what they value. To be subject in these ways is extremely difficult. But do you see what Peter does in verse 22? He's bringing this this whole section of, of good conduct to a close by taking our eyes off of ourselves and the areas that we need to submit. And he is reminding us that everything is in submission to King Jesus. It's all under his feet. And so even as you continue to suffer unjustly this week, even as you fight for faith in difficult circumstances, you can know that your suffering is not the end of the story, but that you are tied to, you are tethered to, the one who has victory over all things. Friends, have you ever enjoyed the victory of another as if it was your own victory? Maybe you're an Eagles fan, and when they won the Super Bowl, you acted as if you had actually accomplished all those things. You began to wear every piece of Eagles clothing that you could get your hands on. You you talked about the Eagles as if you were one of the Eagles. Sometimes we find identity in the victory of others. Church, that's exactly what Peter wants us to do this morning and even more. 
the victory of Christ has become our victory. Church, wear his jersey this week. Talk as if you are reigning with him on high because scripture says that you are. Church, the one who suffered in your place now reigns above all things. The, The one that seemed defeated as he laid in the tomb, he now rules over all. That the one who submitted himself to the crushing weight of our sins and the accusations of the devil, he now sits enthroned on high. And his enemies, all of the demonic powers, all of the sinful and evil authorities of this world, and even the rebellion of your own sinful heart, they are all gathered together and now they are like a footstool under his feet. Church, we can rest in him this week. Your trials may not go away, but neither will your hope in Christ. As you remind yourself that he rose from the dead and ascended on high, he right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and all things are subjected to him. Redeemer Fellowship, this is your king who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is your savior who gave himself willingly for his people. This is the one that we are called to worship with our hearts and our minds and our souls and our entire lives today. Let's rest in him together. Amen.